Let's uh, say a prayer. Gracious God, help us to fearlessly confess our sins as uh, Jenny has demonstrated for us this morning, confident in the knowledge that you are forgiving in a limitless way of us. And let us also see that you are, we are called to not only receive forgiveness, but to practice forgiveness and forgive others. Amen. Oftentimes, the preferred God of our culture is depicted as a no-fault God. You know, no-fault, as in insurance, no-fault. No questions asked. Unconditional pardons for everyone, for all that we do. No questions asked. Now, th this is natural for a culture like ours that sort of abhors the idea of God making any kind of judgment about human behaviors and uh, coming down on us, guilting us. Now, true, for many generations, people have often experienced a church and a God who was too punitive while they longed for a more good-natured God who was not hung up on holding our sins over our heads. But as my friend Pat Kiefert says, what would you rather have, a no-fault God or a forgiving God? They are not the same thing. And that is what our text takes up today. But here's the key question. Does a no-fault God take sin and the effects of sin seriously? A no-fault God, everybody gets a free pass, basically says, hey, everybody gets a free pass, let's move on. Shall we? We're good. Furthermore, a no-fault God is less concerned with whether people change because the gravity of sin is not really addressed, just glossed over. So instead of, oh my gosh, what a gift that God has given to me, we're left with, cool. I get forgiven no matter, no matter what I do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once called that cheap grace. In a no-fault scheme, sin isn't such a big problem, really. God just looks the other way, and so do you. Meanwhile, what about sin and its effects? A forgiving God says, let's not kid ourselves. Sin is a problem. Just look at the world around us. Look into our own hearts. Sin is a problem. It has a cost. It exacts a price. Therefore, grace is not cheap. There is a price to be paid for sin, and that price, that cost, is fractured relationships where people get hurt. 
That's why we call it sin. People get hurt or worse. What if the goal is not simply to give everyone a free pass, but to work towards a world where relationships get restored and the power of sin is diminished among us? What if the goal of forgiveness is to change people's lives and relationships? The Greek word for forgiveness that's used in our text today is to let go. To let go. But letting go should never be letting the same things continue to keep going on. Forgiveness should not be an accomplice for destructive behavior continuing. So accountability is essential. How can there be a release from the cost of sin that allows for a new future to emerge and not merely the perpetuation of bad behavior? This is what Matthew, Jesus are wrestling with in our text. God in Jesus Christ says to us, because the cost of your sins will crush you, I will pay the price of your sins. Bear its weight. Absorb its destructiveness into myself and not retaliate in kind. That is to say, I will forgive you so that you will have your life back and be free to change so that you can love your neighbor and so that you will forgive your neighbor as I have forgiven you. In other words, God's interested in results, not just free passes. On to the examples that Matthew gives us today. Some pretty concrete examples, right? If someone in your church sins against you, what do you do? Just let it go? Well, God forgives him, so should I. Time to move on. Matthew says, not so fast. You go to your brother or sister with your grievance if he does not listen to you, and then what do you do? You bring one or two others uh, into the conversation in, in the interest of accountability. And if he still refuses to listen, you bring it to the church. Now, how, when you read through this, um, how many think that sounds kind of harsh? Yeah, it seems a little, a little overboard, isn't it? Maybe it's just time to bury the hatchet. Now, at its most basic level, of course, many will recognize this sort of approach as just healthy conflict resolution for any work environment or just social environment. How to avoid triangulation and passive aggressiveness. That's what this is designed to do, to get right at it. Because what do we usually do when someone angers us or wrongs us? <laughs> Tiffany knows. Uh, we tell others about it. You know, we kind of let it fester. We hang on to it. Maybe we sort of get passive-aggressive and plot to get revenge somehow. We often don't go to the person, right? right? Now, none of this is healthy. I don't have to tell you. So the basic outlines of this scenario are a call to transparency and health 
and the possibility of forgiveness. Matthew's instructions, far from needlessly guilting someone here, recognize the importance of accountability. And as the early church was forming in that culture, they needed to be that way because the church could have easily fallen apart with a lack of sort of discipline and living according to Jesus' values. Telling the truth in love? Matthew's words are a testament to the importance of creating space for repentance as a prelude to forgiveness. One can then be hopeful that the behavior changes next time. That's the point of it. In fact, despite how harsh these verses might sound, these verses are actually filled with hope. Let's not miss it. Hope that when there are fractures in human relationships, we can find reconciliation with each other. Many times in this world, we will say to one another, you know, well, so-and-so is such a jerk, but he's never going to change. People never change. How many times have you heard that or said that? So there's no point in confronting him or sharing how I feel. Well, that's a textbook definition of cynical, accepting too readily that people will never change. It's all too easy to neglect our belief that God is the God of reconciliation. That's why God sent Jesus into this world, to reconcile people to God's self and to one another. So taking a beef that we have with someone directly to that person is hopeful. And it allows for forgiveness to actually work as God intended it. And reconciliation. Not that that doesn't take guts. So, the forgiver doesn't just look the other way. The forgiver chooses to bear part of the weight of the other's sin and let it die right there. And if the one who is forgiven does the same with others, you have a movement of forgiveness, of love, of life. And in this movement, we learn from verses 21 and 22, as Jenny made clear, that the one who forgives does not ask, how many times do I forgive or keep a ledger? As Jesus tells Peter, be prepared to forgive your brother or sister seven times 70. The more correct rendition, not 77, but uh, 7 times 70, which is like 490. Okay, now we're getting up to that's a lot of times to forgive. You know, the point is it's limitless. It, that is how God approaches things with us. And it's a good thing, too, because let's admit it, we keep doing the same stupid things over and over again, don't we? I mean, let's be real. We need that forgiveness. <laughs> that's why our brother or sister whoever they may be, needs forgiveness from us as well because they are going to keep doing the same stupid stuff over and over. So there's no limit to this forgiveness. Thank God for that. Not only to save you and me, but so that we will forgive others and learn a new way to live. This brings us um, to the parable of the king and his slave. Okay, we, had, we have to talk about this, right? In this parable, the slave 
referenced is probably more of a high-ranking uh, servant, slave and servant are sometimes interchangeable here in, in, in Scripture, um, really an official who is subject to the king. It has a certain amount of power. Well, it seems that this servant is in debt to the king to the tune of 10,000 talents. So, how much is 10,000 talents? We, we have no reference point. Let me just give you one. In this culture, one talent, one talent is worth 15 years of wages for skilled labor. <laughs> so, okay, do the math. 10,000 talents is equal to 150,000 years of pay for a skilled uh, labor. Okay, so that's an absurd amount, of course. And the point is the slave will never be able to pay this back. Um, how we ever got to that point, we don't know. So the king informs the man that he, his family, and all of his possessions will be sold. The man begs the king to have mercy on him. The king is moved by his repentance and does have mercy, and he forgives him his extraordinary debt. In the next scene, the same servant who was forgiven is faced with a fellow servant who is in debt to him to the tune of 100 denarii, a very, very small fraction of 10,000 talents, more of a realistic life debt to someone. The servant who had been forgiven his debt then seizes the man by the throat and tells him to pay up. The man pleads with him for more time to pay his debts. But the servant, the forgiven one, is unmoved and tells the man he will be put in prison until he can pay back his debt of 100 denarii. How do you pay it back when you're in prison, by the way? Well, eventually, the king finds out how his servant treated a fellow servant who owed him money. And the king was understandably furious. He calls for the servant and asks him, why he didn't have mercy on that man, just as he, the king, had mercy on him. And then the king reverses his decision to forgive the man his debts, declaring instead that he will torture the man until he is able to repay the debt, a debt that cannot be repaid. And then Matthew tells the reader that the king is like God. Neither will God continue to forgive you if you fail to forgive your brother or sister as God has forgiven you. Whoa. Kind of heavy. Interestingly, there are biblical, biblical scholars who say that Matthew reads this like an allegory, the king is God, and some suggest Jesus told it originally as a parable. The king is just a king, and uh, leaving us to kind of speculate and wonder about the gift of forgiveness that we get and that we receive and its value. But let's go with Matthew's allegory that God would behave in such a way. And so the story turns sour. It makes you wonder, might God withdraw God's forgiveness of me? Well, let's step back and take a look at this text overall. These verses, all of them, have drawn attention, on the one hand, 
to the magnitude of God's gift. Forgive seven times 70, limitless. Forgive 10,000 talents, that which no person can pay. These details establish the nature of God, the compassion and the lavish love of God's grace. But these verses have also called to attention, called attention to us, the relationship between God forgiving us and we forgiving our fellow human being. Yes, God's forgiveness is unconditional always. But these verses in Matthew remind us to never take it for granted like a casual free pass. Because the forgiveness that you receive is supposed to be the way you live your life with others. And if forgiveness is not both received and given by us, then in a very real sense, the forgiveness becomes null and void. We've treated it as something that it is not. And the forgiveness we were counting on, forgiveness as a warrant to do whatever we want without consequence, well, that forgiveness is not forgiveness at all, but counterfeit. You may remember that in the Lord's Prayer, these words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so we are right back where we started. Forgiveness is never just a free pass. It has a cost. It is intended to make a difference in your life and in your neighbors. If received, practice giving it. Amen.